This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday's Sports on the Sports History Network. Today's guest is Mike Richmond. Mike is an author and journalist who has covered sports for more than 25 years. He is the author of Washington Redskins Football Vault, the History of a Proud Franchise, the Redskins Encyclopedia, and Joe Gibbs, an Enduring Legacy. His latest book is titled George Allen, A Football Life. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Great to chat with uh, a Cowboys fan in the sense that George Allen played a major role in intensifying the Redskins-Cowboys rivalry. Absolutely. I I know we're going to go in depth with that. Yes. Okay, so uh, my first question for you, Mike, is tell the fans, how did you become uh, such a big Washington Redskins fan? Sure. So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, a a D.C. suburb. And when George Allen came to Washington in 1971, I was 10 years old. I had done a few things here and there with the Redskins in the 60s in terms of I went to a few games, but I don't really remember too much from that period. But when Allen came here in 71, I became a, a true Redskins fan. I became hooked on the team and I followed them every Sunday and I would have these huge emotional swings based on how well they did. And I came to know the players very well. And of course, Alan himself, I would just live and die by how that, how well that team did. And at the same time, Alan made them a, one of the top teams in the NFL, his first season, 1971, he took them to the postseason for the first time in a quarter century the Redskins hadn't played in the postseason since 1945, back in the Sammy Baugh days. In 1972, he took them to Super Bowl VII. That was an 11-3 regular season year. Then they beat the Packers and Cowboys in the playoffs and then faced the Dolphins in Super Bowl VII. I happened to be at both of those playoff games at RFK Stadium. I should also say that my father, who owned a men's clothing store right here in Rockville, Maryland, in a promotional event, he invited uh, Redskins running back Charlie Haraway to come to the store to sign autographs, take pictures. And a picture of me and my father and Charlie Haraway is on the inside cover of the book. So, I mean, I just became a real Redskins fanatic at that time for all those aforementioned reasons. Right. Then later on in life, high school, I wrote for my school newspaper. I had a strong interest in, in writing and storytelling and history. I loved history. My mother took me to so many museums in the DC area uh-huh. and I, I gained a love for history. So all of that uh, combined chose journalism as a career. That's how I advanced to eventually embark on all of these literary projects. Okay. Great, great story. Okay. So um, I, I, uh, wasn't, you know, I started probably watching, I'm about the same age as you. I was uh, nine years old in 1971. So I, I can kind of remember when I first started watching NFL football was around 1969. I had an older brother and my father was a big football fan. But I wasn't really that familiar with George Allen 
until he took over as the head coach of the Redskins in 1971. And being a huge Dallas Cowboys fan at that time, I learned about Coach George Allen pretty quickly because he made it very clear that he did not like the Cowboys. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about why George Allen had such a dislike for the Cowboys? When Allen coached the Los Angeles Rams in the 1960s, or from 66 through 70, he actually came to know several people in the Cowboys front office very well. He, he knew Tom Landry, came to know Tuck Schramm, because for one, the Rams and the Cowboys scrimmaged every year. Right. The Cowboys practiced in Thousand Oaks, California, and yep. so the Rams and the Cowboys would would scrimmage, do a preseason scrimmage. So they the players really got to know each other well. Allen got to know Tom Landry very well. And there was two good teams going going at each other. At the same time, Allen suspected that Schramm and Pete Rozelle were in cahoots because the two had worked side by side with the LA Rams in the 1950s. They knew each other well. They were friends. So he suspected that there was some type of you know, conspiracy going on that would be aimed at uh, at the Rams and other teams throughout the league in favor of the Cowboys. Then that feeling really heightened when Allen became the Redskins coach in 1971. And case in point, the first three games of that 71 season for the Redskins were NFC East games on the road, the Cardinals, Giants, and Cowboys. And Allen thought at the time that that was a ploy on the part of of Schramm and Roselle to set the Redskins back in their first season under Allen. But uh, as it so happened, the Redskins won those three games. They actually won the first five games in 1971. There was just an antipathy on the part of Allen toward the Cowboys for those reasons. And Allen also didn't like that, that corporate image that the Cowboys had. I mean, he was totally opposite. He was this rah-rah guy and, you know, great motivator, one of the greatest motivators right. in NFL history among coaches. Well, whereas Tom Landry, as you know well, he was very um, very stoic on the sidelines and didn't show any emotion. And Allen Allen was the uh, antithesis of that. So for for those reasons, you know, Allen built that rivalry. He really intensified the rivalry. The two teams actually had a rivalry in the '60s when Sonny Jurgensen coached a quarterback, the Redskins, and he had great receivers. So. The Redskins were able to put up a lot of points. At the same time, the Cowboys were becoming a really good team right. by the mid-60s, and they had great players as well. So when the two teams clashed, they had some very high-scoring games, 34-31, 31-30. 30. So they had a rivalry in the 60s, but it really it, it took on a new dimension when Allen became the coach in 1971. Right. That's absolutely right. I remember that. That whole decade with the Cowboys and Redskins, one of the greatest rivalries in NFL history. And yeah. I remember getting, <laughs> I remember getting so worked up for those games, especially when they televised them. They didn't always televise them, but uh boy, me and my brother would just you know, biting our nails watching those games. Well, you know, that rivalry, that era of like the early 70s through the 80s of Joe Gibbs era, that era of the Redskins-Cowboys rivalry, you can put on par with the intensity of like Yankees-Red Sox or Celtics-Lakers yeah. over the years. It was that type of rivalry or in the NFL, I guess, Steelers 
Raiders from that era. Right. But yeah, he, he built it into it. So what we saw in the eighties under Gibbs was really something that, that George Allen had laid the groundwork for when he coached here in the seventies, he yeah. built that rivalry to, to what it became uh, in the Gibbs years in the eighties. Yep. Absolutely. Very intense. Very intense. So take us back a little to, um, I guess where his name really, he put his name on the map was his years as a defensive coach with the Chicago Bears. That was the early 1960s, right? He first was hired by the Bears in 1959 as the head talent scout. It wasn't until the late 62 season, Clark Shaughnessy was the Reds, was the Bears defensive coach. He stepped down. He was at odds with George Hallis. So Allen took over as an interim defensive coach for the remaining three games of the 62 season. Ben Hallis named him the permanent defensive coach in January of 63. And then he built that, that great defense, that great Bears defense that right. paved the way to the 63 NFL championship for the Chicago Bears. I mean, you ask any Bears player that's still alive today about that 63 team, they will credit George Allen as the architect of that that Bears championship. Although Hallis was the head coach. I mean, it was really it was really Allen's team because it was that team was so predicated on the defense and how well the defense did. It was one of those most ferocious defenses in NFL history. I mean, even today the conversation is what Bears defense was better, the eighty five Bears defense or the sixty three. So yeah. but Allen he, that's how he made his name. Yes. He became a hot name on the uh, coaching market, head coaching market, uh, right after that championship win. But it, it wasn't until after the 65 season that he left the Bears to become the, the Rams coach. Right. So even though um, he only was with the Bears for, uh, I was going to mention uh, Dick Buckus. So he was only there for Buckus' rookie season, but I do remember hearing Buckus speak uh you know, very highly of uh, Georgia, how much he helped him, uh, you know, coming into the NFL as a, a young rookie. How much? Absolutely. Well, that's all that's in the book. I I have Butkus quoted as saying that uh, I, I know he passed away a few weeks ago. But, yeah, he um, he said in his rookie year, he would meet with George Allen. They, there was like a restaurant in Chicago that they went to frequently and and they would all they would do was talk football. That's he said. That's all George Allen was about, which is really no surprise. I mean, everybody said that about him over the years. All he did was focus on football. But but Butkus learned so much from him in just his rookie season. And Allen is is heavily credited with drafting Butkus and Sayers in the '65 draft. They went back to back, three and four in the first round in '65, and known today as one of the greatest drafts in NFL history because they were both first ballot Hall of Fame inductees. And, and then pre, prior to that, Allen uh, led the drafting of Mike Ditka in 61. Right. He also drafted a guy named Ronnie Bull, Bears running back, who was the NFL Rookie of the Year in 62. So, And other, he drafted other uh, really good players throughout that era. So you can – Allen's name really doesn't come up as one of the greatest general managers in NFL history. But what he did, I mean, he, he's certainly deserving of being part of that conversation. Yes, that's that's interesting because that you mentioned the the draft picks because he was known when he was with the Redskins he was known as the guy that was always trading away draft picks for the veteran players. 
Well, that, that piqued my curiosity too. that exact point. I said to myself, well, how could he have such a keen eye for, for young talent? And then on the flip side, all he did is focus on veterans when he was the head coach. And I, I asked Bruce Allen that question, George Allen's son, right. who had been very close to him throughout his coaching years. And the way Bruce explained it is that by the time his father became the head coach of the Rams in 66, the pressure was really building on head coaches in the NFL to, to produce and produce as fast as possible. I don't think it, it was what it is today. I mean, today it's like maybe two seasons and you're out, but still the pressure was there. Allen thought that the way he would win fastest was through veteran players, acquiring all the veteran players. And he made uh, about 50 trades when he was with the Rams. He had full control over that part of the roster uh, trade. And Rams owner Dan Reeves had control of the draft. But when Allen got to Washington, he had control of everything. He had control of trades, uh, signing players, drafting players, you name it. He had, he had, so he was not only the coach, but he was the GM when he was right. in Washington. So he made even more trades when he was in in Washington. And yeah, he focused primarily on veteran players, which I think kind of was why the Redskins plateaued in a way his last few seasons in Washington because he didn't really put the emphasis on the draft that other teams did, such as the Cowboys right. and the Steelers of that era. I mean, the Cowboys with Tony Dorsett, Randy White, great players like that. And there were other players at Tutal Jones yep. they acquired during that era. Um, they had great offensive linemen too, who, younger offensive linemen um, and veterans too. But And the Steelers of the 74 draft, drafting yep. four future Hall of Famers in that draft and then signing one additional future Hall of Famer, Donnie Shell, as a free agent. So they put a lot of emphasis on youth and it really, I mean, the results showed on the playing field. Well, it was Allen's Redskins, they made the playoffs. They kept getting knocked out in the first round. So they kind of plateaued. They were not an elite team comparable to the Cowboys or the Steelers or the Dolphins or even the Vikings of, of that era. They were a very good team that couldn't get past the first round of the playoffs. Right. That's another question I was going to ask you is, uh, as Coach Allen had one of the you know, top winning percentages in NFL history. Uh, so why do you think his teams uh, always, you know, didn't really have great success in the postseason, as you mentioned? Do you think it was largely because of that? That yeah. And in large part because of his focus on veterans. But there was also another, another theory that I explored in the book, and that is when Allen's when Allen coached the Redskins, he didn't really have an elite quarterback. He actually had an, a sort of elite quarterback with the Rams and Roman Gabriel. Gabriel right. was becoming one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL at the time. So, and, But he lost two first-round playoff games in L.A. too. The circumstances were in 67, he finished 11-1-2 in the regular season, but he had to play the playoff game on the road. It's the way the it was dictated at the time in the NFL. He played the 9-4-1 Packers on the road. Now, would the results have been different if they had played in L.A.? Maybe. Who knows? But they had to go to Green Bay to play the play that playoff game and lost. Uh, 69, they did play on the road again, lost to the Vikings. Uh, but um, And the Vikings didn't have the better regular season record that year. Um, in the 70s, the Redskins really didn't have that elite quarterback that, like in, in Gabriel, 
Billy Kilmer was a, a great game manager and a great leader, and the players really, really rallied around him. But yeah. he wasn't that that sort of Terry Bradshaw or Roger Staubach. He wasn't at that level of a quarterback. So even back in that era, today we know that it's definitely a quarterback-driven league. But even back in that era, you needed one of those elite quarterbacks to really advance farther in the draft. So that was another theory of mine that he didn't have that elite quarterback. You know, I also explored the possibility if Allen had given Joe Theismann an opportunity to start much earlier in his career and had developed him as a, as a consistent starter, would things have been different? Because Theismann's rookie year in the NFL was 1974 and he barely played. He played it a full half of one game. After the season, Edward Bennett Williams, the Redskins team president and part owner who ran the uh, daily operations of the team, wrote a memo to Allen saying, listen, you can't keep both Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer on the team at the same time. They're too expensive. Jurgensen made 180000 in 1974, Kilmer 125. At that time, that was a lot of money. So he wanted to Allen to get rid of one of them. And, and so having the Allen uh, told Jurgensen, you know, we're not going to renew your contract. In the same letter, William said to George Allen, you know, I think you should give Joe Theismann a chance to start. Right. Allen never really did until like 1976. And still then it was rotating with Kilmer. And then 77, he again rotated with Kilmer. So Theismann was never really like the bona fide starter throughout Allen's term there. At the same time, after the 74 season, Ted Marchabroda, the Redskins offensive coordinator, later the Colts coach, he wrote to Allen saying like, George, you know, I think you should give Joe Theismann a, a chance to be the true starter of the team. He's a hard worker. Um, he's got a lot of potential. Again, Allen never did. So that was something else that I explored in the book. What would have happened if George Allen had given Theismann a chance to start, right. become the bona fide starter earlier in his career? Because we saw what happened with Theismann later on down the road in the yeah. party years. He was inching toward becoming one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And then in the Gibbs years, he be, he was an elite quarterback. Right. Okay. Well, um, I hope that that explained the. Yeah. I was going to delve into the quarterback issue because George Allen seemed like, you know, um, Billy Kilmer was his guy and you just couldn't talk him out of it. Because also, I wanted to ask you about uh, Sonny Jurgensen. I know he had the the injury. I think it was Achilles tendon, which is a very serious injury, of course. But um, from the interviews that I heard with you know Sonny Jurgensen, didn't really seem like the two of them hit it off too well. Uh, Sonny Jurgensen and George Allen. That is correct. Well, let's go back to when Allen first became the. Redskins coach in 1971. He inherited Jurgensen and as well as other great players on offense. And Jurgensen was going to be a starter. I mean, Allen was very excited to have Sonny Jurgensen as a starter. Who wouldn't be? I mean, he, Jurgensen today is known as one of the greatest pure passers in NFL history. Yeah. He put up amazing numbers in the 60s. I mean, so Allen was excited to have him as a starting quarterback. It so happened that Jurgensen suffered a shoulder injury in the 71 preseason. So Allen had already acquired Billy Kilmer. That was his first trade. He brought right. Kilmer in as a backup to Jorgensen. He liked Kilmer. He liked the fire in him. And he thought he had ability 
good ability as, as a quarterback. So Kilmer started the 71 season, played most of that year. In the meantime, through the first four years of the Allen regime, Jurgensen was, was nicked with injuries. He didn't, didn't play a whole lot. When he did get on the field, he was very good at times. He, he actually, I don't know what the exact number was, but in the games he started in the Allen regime, he had, he had an amazing winning record. Right. At the same time, one of the things that Allen disliked about Jurgensen, at the time, quarterbacks called their own plays. So Allen liked the fact that Kilmer was like an extension of him on the field, very conservative in his play calling. He would yeah. follow instructions. Jurgensen, on the other hand, was he kind of freelanced. Right. He, liked, he did his own thing out there yeah. because he was used to having that opportunity under previous coaches. He loved Lombardi when Lombardi coached yeah. in D.C. in 69. Jurgensen said over the years that uh, Lombardi was the greatest coach he ever played for. So that's one one reason that the two they they didn't see eye to eye regarding that. Jurgensen also didn't appreciate appreciate Allen's conservative approach to the game. You know the run based approach to the game. Jurgensen wanted to air it out. Yeah. But the story, as I explained earlier, the story, the common narrative in in about the Allen Jurgensen relationship is that Allen single handedly single handedly forced Jurgensen into retirement. That's not true entirely based on what I explained earlier, that Edward Bennett Williams, the Redskins team president, told Allen, you know, you can't keep both Jurgensen and Kilmer on the team at the same time. I actually uncovered that at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There's a tremendous uh, uh, section in the library of Allen archives that were donated by his family, papers and newspaper articles and photos and other documents there. So I went through that collection twice, two different occasions at the Hall of Fame. But that's one thing that I found there was that memo that Williams wrote to Allen after the 74 season. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm glad you cleared that up. So I'm taking a step back now. There was another uh, defensive player that spoke very highly of George Allen, and that was Deacon Jones, part of the fearsome foursome. So can you tell us a little bit? I mean, they had some talented players there on defense, Marilyn Olsen and Deacon Jones, but they weren't really succeeding, the Rams, until George Allen took over. So tell us a little bit about the fearsome foursome. Right. Well, the fearsome foursome existed before Allen arrived. And in terms of Deacon, and like you said, they, they weren't winning. They were bad to mediocre. The previous, previous seven years before Allen's arrival, they were uh, – uh, they just had a, uh, an appalling winning record. It was really, really bad. Deacon Jones at the same time wasn't necessarily the most disciplined player on the field. He didn't have a coach who could really guide him the way he he needed to. Right. He was an effective player. He was a dominant player, but he wasn't as disciplined as he thinks he should have been during right. that time. So when Allen arrived, Allen being a defensive-oriented coach, he really uh, got – Jones positioned positioned the right way. He unleashed him as a pass rusher, and Jones at the same time became one of the most ferocious pass rushers in NFL history. Right, and he has uh, you know nearly 200 sacks today. Even though sacks were not an official statistic at the time, uh, somebody has done a count of all the sacks that that Jones collected over the years. I think it maybe it's uh, closer to 190 or something like that. But um, 
So Allen disciplined him. At the same time, he, he gave Deacon Jones a lot of responsibility. He, he showed a lot of confidence in, it, confidence in him. And Jones, on the other hand, he became to really like George Allen. So then when uh, Allen came to Washington, he he acquired Deacon Jones for Jones' last season in 1974. So Jones played one year with the Redskins in 74. And actually, uh, Allen allowed him to, to kick an extra point in the final yeah, yeah. regular season game that year, a 42-0 win over the Chicago Bears. That's right. He kept so that, that's a major reason that Jones really came to appreciate George Allen. He loved the fact that Allen was a winner. He, Allen transformed that Rams team into one of the top contenders in the league. They, those players loved the fact they were winning. And in fact, when Allen was fired the first time after the 68 season, Jones and Merlin Olson and other members of the fearsome foursome, they were part of a press conference that Allen organized. And the, those players came there. They were all veteran players. And they said, listen, Dan Reeves, if you don't rehire George Allen, then we're quitting. So Reeves rehired him three weeks later, although he was to say that, it wasn't because of what the players said at that press conference that he rehired him, but he he did rehire him several weeks later and then fired him again for the second time after the 1970 season. So what was uh, Dan Reeves' major issue with uh, George Allen? Was it just that George Allen wanted too much control? George Allen, because he had that control that right. with the active player roster and the ability to make trades, he was spending a lot of money. Yeah. Reeves didn't appreciate that. The two were also polar opposites in terms of personality. As I wrote in the book, Reeves was like this partying guy. He was no—he was a drinker. Right. They would go, you know, he would go out with the assistant coaches after games or after practice or whatever. They would uh, hit the bars in the LA area. George Allen was wasn't like that. He wasn't a drinker at all. His favorite drink was milk. So he wouldn't hang out with Dan Reeves. I, so they had that that sort of personality conflict. They were polar opposites in, right. in terms of their personalities. So they never really got to know each other that well. So on the one hand, Reeves didn't like Allen's trading habits and how much money he was spending for these players. They had personality differences. I'll, I'll give you one example of a trade that Reeves just, you know, he'll, he would never forgive George Allen for this. But in 1968, the Rams drafted Gary Beban the Hall of Fame quarterback out of UCLA. Right. Well, George Allen knew at the time that Beban could not play in the NFL. Beban was a Reeves draft pick. Reeves had control of the draft. Allen knew that Beban couldn't play in the NFL, so he subsequently traded Beban to the Washington Redskins. Okay. And Reeves didn't appreciate that. He thought Beban would be great for drawing fans to the LA Coliseum. He had played a co his college ball in Los Angeles at UCLA. He thought Beaver would be great for a great marketing tool right. for the Rams. You know, draw fans to the LA Coliseum, and so. But Allen traded him to the Redskins. Uh, Reeves certainly didn't appreciate that. Reeves didn't also appreciate the fact that Allen had tapped Roman Gabriel over Bill Munson to be uh -huh. starting quarterback. Reeves really liked Munson, and Munson w was later traded uh, to the Detroit Lions. So Reeves didn't appreciate all of that. So with all of those. Factors combined, that's what led to the uh, the antagonistic relationship of their, of their uh, antagonistic nature of their relationship. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, do you think um, one of the major reasons is 
that it took so long to get uh, George Allen inducted into the Hall of Fame was because of uh, his postseason record not being very successful in the postseason? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I asked that question to Len Shapiro, who was on the Hall of Fame selection committee and who was actually a uh, beat reporter for the Washington Post covering the Redskins during the Allen era. And he and Allen actually didn't get along either. They, the two, Allen didn't like Shapiro's coverage and Shapiro didn't like Allen in terms of uh, how he treated the media. But then Shapiro lobbied for Allen to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Early on, after Allen's passing in 1990, his name did come up a few times, but that was for the primary selection committee. And Shapiro explained to me that his postseason record, his two and seven record in the postseason was probably a reason that he wasn't selected at that point because, or a reason for the delay in his selection. But when he was eligible through the seniors committee, right. That's when Shapiro said the postseason record really wasn't as much of a factor. And at the same time, 2001, when Shapiro really lobbied hard for Allen's induction, NFL Films released a documentary called The George Allen Story, Winning is Living, Losing is is Dying, which was really, I mean, the title of the documentary really tells the whole story about George Allen. He put so much emphasis on football in his life, and it was his top priority as many of his players and other associates would say, George Allen looked, you know, the order of his priorities in life were football, family, and God. Right. Football was always first. So that's the, that was the title of that documentary. So that documentary was released the same year. Sure enough, uh, the selection committee approved George Allen's induction into the hall of fame. And he got in in 2002. Okay. So um, after his years of coaching in the NFL, I I kind of enjoyed him as a, an announcer. He spent four seasons as an announcer, and I thought he was a pretty good announcer. And he seemed like he enjoyed it, but there was always that, you know, deep down, he always wanted to be on the sidelines coaching. So uh, tell us a little bit about his, uh, how you viewed him as an announcer. Well, yes, that is correct. After he left the NFL for the final time, and he was fired after two exhibition games in 1978 by the Rams. After that, he did want to get back into coaching. And his name came up on a few occasions. Teams were very, apparently very interested in him, but nothing really materialized to where he was rehired. There was one situation where there was a fan poll in New York on who was the preference for for becoming the Jets' next head coach. And Allen was first, and then it was Hank Stram and, and someone else. So he was – I mean, the fans knew of him, and but he never got that opportunity. And I, I think he was blackballed by the NFL because of his relationships with, with prior owners. And But I can get into that later. So, yeah, he, he did enjoy those four years – that he had in the booth. He's first with uh, Vince Scully right. Right, for his first three years. He had a, a great uh, working relationship with Scully. He, uh, he learned a lot from him about broadcasting Allen in the booth. He was very detail oriented. He was, it was preparation, preparation, preparation. So when he would go to practice sites in the days preceding games, he would 
study what, what was going on. And he felt that, hey, I should be back in coaching. This, this is where I am supposed to be. He had an opportunity to coach in the USFL. He coached there for two seasons, 1983 and 1984. Right. 83, he coached the Chicago Blitz. 84, the Arizona Wranglers in the USFL. Both those teams went to the playoffs, by the way, and the Wranglers lost in the USFL championship in 84. But from that point on, he never coached again in any capacity until 1990 at Long Beach State. So, But that whole period, from the time he left the NFL in 1978 onward, he, he definitely wanted to get back into coaching. That itch was always there. And in terms of the broadcasting, that's the way he looked at it. When he went out to visit those those teams in the days preceding games, he thought he was really a coach. Right. He, he got press releases from from the teams. He watched game films. He did everything that he would have done as a coach in his preparation to to do the uh, color analysis for those games. Yes. Okay. So you think uh, you mentioned the, a lot of the owner, that he may have been blackballed. Um, I know a lot of the owners maybe were afraid to hire from because of his reputation as, you know, trading away uh, draft picks and that he liked he can, he liked to have complete control. But uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the coaches, uh, uh, not coaches, a lot of the uh, owners kind of blackballed him out of the NFL. Sure. When Allen was let go by the Redskins after the 77 season, and I say let go because in the technical sense, he wasn't fired. Williams had offered him a contract extension before the 77 season, which he never signed. So he departed for L.A. at that point. But he had some party words, parting words for, for Williams. He called him a, a cold-blooded fish and several other uh, vitriolic comments that he made at the time. It was really, really bad. It was not good for public relations, put it that way. So, But the other owners read what, what he had said right. and – that did not bode well for George Allen. At the same time, they knew of his reputation as a wanting that full control, wanting to be the GM. And the league was slowly was transitioning at the time to more of a GM coach setup, a pure general manager and a pure coach. Allen wanted control of both of those facets of the game. So, and the owners weren't necessarily, uh, you know, too happy about relinquishing that. In fact, the Redskins hired Bobby Bethard in 1978. The right after Allen left, they hired Bobby Bethard as their their general manager, and Jack Pardee as their replacement for Allen as coach. That was another reason the the owners were reluctant to to bring Allen on because he wanted all of that responsibility, the same which he had with the Redskins, and actually he had that in the USFL. He was both GM and and coach, so it was his antagonistic relationship relationships with the owners, with Dan Reeves in LA, with George, with uh, Edward Bennett Williams in Washington. He also, he, Williams didn't like him for spending habits as well. He thought the Redskins were losing money because of George Allen and because of all, all the uh, you know big contracts he was issuing out to, to veteran players. Right. So Williams did not appreciate that. So that's one major reason it led to their antagonistic relationship. And, and then I, as I explained, Alan made those, those terrible comments about Williams when he was walking out the door and moved to Los Angeles. So the owners remembered all of that. They heard about it and they didn't want George Allen back. They thought it was a cancer. 
And right. right, they quietly said, you know, we're not going to hire George Allen as a coach. I don't think there was any one specific meeting where they got together and said, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're not going to hire George Allen. But they they knew among themselves what they would get if they hired George Allen. And they didn't they didn't want that uh, that headache, basically. Right. And the game was starting to change a lot. So uh, that all, right. played into, all played into it. Uh, now, there are a lot of amusing stories about George Allen, you know, accusations of him sending spies to other teams' practices. But I remember um, I remember an interview where he was asked why his favorite foods were ice cream, peanut butter, and milk. And his answer was that they didn't take much time to eat. So he want, he just wanted to hurry up and eat and get back to work. He was so obsessed with football. He didn't, he didn't want to take any extra time with his meals. That is exactly right. I mean, his, his nickname or one of his nicknames was ice cream because he, he ate so much ice cream because it was easy to swallow and it would allow him to focus on football. He didn't want to take that time to actually chew food and <laughs> was supposedly would, would take up more time. In fact, um, at some point during the 1966 season, when Allen was in LA, uh, Lee Merriweather's the former Miss America and later Catwoman in the movie Batman, she brought him a gallon of ice cream. Uh-huh. And I found I found that photo was part of the LA Times or one of the Southern California newspapers. But uh, yeah, he, he loved ice cream, peanut butter, easy to swallow. Yeah. He would peel off the ends of bread. Right. <laughs> right. His milk was, uh, he thought that it would, con- he had ul- ulcers. So he yeah. thought his, the milk would, would calm his ulcers. But he, in, in terms of anything else, I mean, he was a teetotaler. He never, he rarely had a alcoholic beverage. Once right. in a once in a while, he would maybe share a beer with his wife or something like that. But he uh, he rarely drank. And uh, but yeah, milk was his his favorite beverage. He was square. He his favorite movie, one of his favorite movies, was The Sound of Music. Right. He liked um, he liked jazz. Yeah. Jazz was that was his favorite style of music. He. He certainly didn't get caught up in the uh, in the counterculture from the sixties. Oh no, no, he was quite the opposite. And yeah. I, I remember that you know you could still see on the NFL films, uh, like after they had a big victory, they would be in the locker room and it would be like uh, almost like a high school uh, locker. You know, he'd be jumping up and down and leading the cheers. <laughs> you could see well, he had that type of <laughs> yeah, he had that type of enthusiasm about him. He. The, and a lot of the players appreciated it. Some, on the other hand, thought that that would wear off after a while. It was too right. much, too much rah rah. It was right. like enough is enough, George. You know, we're professional players. And but yeah, early on he did the the rah rah, the three cheers for the Redskins. Yep. In fact, what you probably saw in NFL films is the shot of him early in the 1971 season, which was his first year in Washington, where he was doing that. The, as I mentioned earlier, they won the first three regular season games on the road against NFC's opponents and then the first five games of that year. So, yeah, he was – he did a lot of that. And he would tell players you – know, first of all, he's known as one of the greatest motivational coaches in NFL history. He would tell players, hey, you know, the game rests on your shoulders. And many of them believed that. They, you know, they took that to heart when they went on the field. He would he would say that they, – they could have been special teams guys who – 
their only action was was you know on a kick return squad or whatever. But he would tell he would say that to them before the game. They they really really liked that. Right. Well, he, he was very well known for uh, stressing special teams play. Yeah. Well, he was uh, one of the first coaches in the league who put so much emphasis on special teams. Maybe he did it more so than any other any of his peers at the time. He also hired one of the first special teams coaches in Dick Vermeil in 1969, the same year the Eagles hired Marv Levy as their special teams coach. So Vermeil and Levy were the first two special teams coaches in the league that year. But Allen put so much emphasis on special teams. He would count on them for at least two wins per season. And they produced so many big plays for him, block punts and right. other block kicks and turnovers. He was a, a ball hawking coach. And, um, yeah, uh, they there were so many games where the special teams turned it around for him. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the – there were a lot of accusations. Now, he wasn't the only coach, you know. George uh, Hallis back in the day was accused of the same thing with uh, sending out spies. But uh, I don't know if, you know, any of that was ever proven, but there was quite a few uh, – teams in the league that were uh, accusing George Allen of, of, of sending spies to their practices. They would see right, guys well, up in the trees. And <laughs> <laughs> well, when he was the head coach, he was known as the, the top spy in the league. Right. <laughs> and the Dallas Cowboys in particular thought that he would station somebody with a camera very close to their practice site. In fact, Bob Lilly, the great Cowboys defensive tackle, told me this, that uh, – they had this this paranoia about them that they they were being spied on during their their practices. And he said they eventually moved to an indoor practice site. George Allen was known for doing that's another part of the Redskins Cowboys rivalry. That George Allen would he was it was believed that he would send one of his men out there to spy on the Cowboys, but he was he would spy on other teams as well. And he did other things that were you know unethical, like he would he would pump players for information. He would right. hire them. There was this one story I have in the book that he, he got a Giants player. One of his assistant coaches met the player at the airport, talked to him for a little bit, and then the player was cut. <laughs> for, for, it was a, to pump him for information. So, uh, But, he yeah, he picked up a lot of that from Hallis. And, right. in fact, when late in the 58 season, Hallis brought George Allen in as a spy for the Los Angeles Rams Games. The Bears had two late season games against the Rams that year, and Allen had been an assistant coach with the Rams in 1957. So Hallis brought George Allen in as a spy for those two late season Rams games. But yeah, as I wrote in the book, uh, Hallis was was known for that too. Allen learned the good and the bad from Hallis, but that was his primary mentor in the NFL. Right. <laughs> Well, it was certainly good uh, reliving all these memories. And as I say, I remember, you know, I'm very thankful that I grew up in that era to see all during the 1970s, that big rivalry between the Cowboys and Redskins. I don't know if, I don't know if there'll ever be another rivalry like that. Um, it was very intense rivalry and it was uh, a privilege to interview you and, uh, uh, good luck with your book. Now tell us again uh, the name of the book. 
George yeah. Allen of Football Life. And that's available. It's, Where can uh, listeners get that book? Well, it's available through the all the traditional means, including Amazon. One can get a copy through Amazon. It's also available if you want an author signed copy. Uh, just go to my website, which uh-huh. is uh, Mike Richmond journalist.com and Richmond is spelled R-I-C-H-M-A-N Mike Richmond journalist.com if you want an author autograph copy so yeah it's a, but it, you can get it through Amazon as well and but yeah this is my uh, my signature project and I'm very excited about it but be happy to personalize uh, personalize a copy for anyone all right excellent it was uh, it was great uh, talking to you and uh, fascinating topic uh george allen very uh always found him uh pretty fascinating so thanks for taking the time for the interview and uh good luck with your book uh, thank you very much mark and thank you very much for having me as a guest on your show i enjoyed it okay well see you see you uh soon uh, hopefully uh you'll get some more interviews on the sports history network Thank you very much, Mark. Yep. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Take care. God bless. You too. Bye. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.